starting at Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Father, this is your church, and we pray that we would more and more worship you in the way that you want. We pray this morning you would be shaping our minds by your gospel word. And please help me to um, help us as we reflect on what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are picking up the the second half of what we started last week. Uh, Jay began, um, began us thinking in Romans 14 and 15 about what happens when Christians disagree, and particularly disagree on how to use our freedom or or actually where the lines of freedom fall. Is it okay to do this or not? And those are the kind of issues. And because those are the kind of issues, disagreement issues, I'm expecting there might be some questions. It's one of the reasons we're having that that Q&A session in two weeks. Um, So please do get in touch. We've had a couple of great emails this week asking about specific um, issues and how to think, and we'd love more of those. Um, So please do... Um, ask follow-up questions. There's no way in in a limited time this morning that we're going to cover everything we may be thinking. 
But actually, just before we get on to the, the specific issue of this passage, I want to step back and ask a slightly bigger question. You can see it on the outline on the um, uh, final page of, of the service sheet. The bigger question is this. How does a multicultural church stay united in worship? How does a multicultural church stay united in worship? That's the bigger question, I think, this morning. If you're just looking into Christian things, I hope you're kind of curious about that. Uh, it's a big issue in our culture, isn't it? How do you keep different races together? How do you hold together people with strong opinions in a community group? Multicultural unity is a big deal. And whether in football or in Black Lives Matter or the deeply troubling scenes from the Israel-Palestine conflict, I think we're all aware how intractable sometimes it can be to hold together people with very different convictions or cultural backgrounds. One of the world's solutions to that is ghettoization. It can happen by race or class or wealth. It even happens to some extent in Edinburgh. Uh, we kind of divide up around the city into our different patches. You stay on your turf, we'll stay on ours. You kind of stay your side of the wall. There's an uneasy ceasefire. And so this idea that you could have a multicultural community, a multinational, multi-background, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, upper class, middle class, working class, educated not, schemes and people living in penthouses in the same church family, worshipping the same God together, it almost sounds like a dream. Surely not. Except that is precisely what the Bible is determined to do. God says it's his dream. Just look at chapter 15, verse 5 and 6. This is the kind of climax of the passage. It's where we're going to land. God's big aim in the gospel, chapter 15, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Together, glorifying God with one voice, united in worship, all types, unity, united in all life worship. That's the goal of this passage. It's the goal of the gospel, producing united worship, not by the threat of the sword, the kind of enforced conformity, but by the grace of the gospel, the cross changing us from the inside out to unite together in worship. Now, just before we get to why we need this reminder, why did the Roman church need this reminder? Well, we started seeing last week because they were a multicultural church. They were living in a cosmopolitan city, and in the church there were Jews and non-Jews. That was the biggest fault line. That was where some of the strongest held convictions were. But there were other differences too. If you look at the greetings in chapter 16, you'll see there were, not now, but there were slaves and free, there were rich and poor, there were educated and not, there were men and women, there were many different backgrounds and opinions. So how does a multicultural church like that stay united in worship, especially at the point where there's disagreement about what's right to do, about how a Christian should live, about how a church should operate? It's a question God cares about. His gospel is designed to bring people together in worship of him. And of course, it's a great topic to be thinking about today, isn't it? 
I know we keep saying this, but I think it keeps being true. Here we are, the first day when we got more people in the building, and the first day we're opening up to, to try and have everyone come to church weekly from now, uh, the first time we're, we're opening up uh, kind of new church activities and church life, the, the time when we're not just worshipping God from our living rooms, but coming together, united, in one voice. Well, we can't quite sing our voices yet, but hopefully in time. It couldn't be more timely to be reminded about how God can hold us together with his gospel. And the gospel way of doing it is so different to the world's way of doing it. So what might, um, what might the kind of human political approach to holding a church together be? Well, you could go down the kind of focus group route, the kind of market research. Let's ask everyone, maybe do a survey, and find out the least offensive things we could do on a Sunday, and we'll just design it around kind of minimizing, minimizing anyone being upset. If you did do that, you'd realize there is no kind of common ground. Like We've all got different views about what should go on. Um, so maybe you think, well, let's just have multiple streams. Let's kind of, uh, this is my grandma's approach to Christmas dinner, actually. Um, she's an amazing cook, really generous host. And her approach was everyone should have something they're happy with. Uh, so there were like eight vegetables because each child got to choose one. And there were two types of butter and different thicknesses of gravy. And one year, a lasagna came out, an individual lasagna, because one of the children didn't want to eat any of the roast dinner. Is that the solution to Christian cultural differences? We kind of have a hip and trendy evening service for the young ones and a formal service for the more traditional folk. They kind of pick your own flavor, church. Students over here, families over here, older people over here. Or in the Roman church, Jewish people over here, because they can't agree on what to eat at a church lunch. And Gentile believers over here, because they think it's all fine. Just kind of siloing off into our own custom-made service, that the Burger King church, have it your way. Now that might be simpler, fewer disagreements or differences of opinion. But it is ghettoization all over again. It's just the Christian version. It's not 15 verse 5. Living in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's plan for his church is to have people from every tribe and tongue, every background in life, united in one voice. Church isn't supposed to be that kind of subscription video service with there's, there's thousands of channels and we can pick up the one that suits us. No, it's supposed to be unified worship across cultural boundaries. And happily, Romans has been telling us God has a secret weapon to achieve this, far more powerful than focus groups or the multi-channel bonanza. Romans has been telling us that God has the power of the gospel. The gospel, God's power to save everyone who believes, and God's power to transform everyone who believes, both the Jew and the Gentile, and all of us. The gospel can transform us, transform our minds, change the way we think, the way we relate to each other, change our hearts. Again, look at chapter 12, verse 2. We've heard it a few times already this morning, but it's so central. 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, the will, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, the gospel, the, the mercies of God as, as God, as verse 1 puts it, this just amazing grace, this mind-blowing, 
pride-humbling, mercy-drenched grace in Jesus Christ, the stuff we've been hearing about in chapters 1 to 11, they are to transform the way we think in all sorts of areas, including how we relate to Christians we disagree with. See, the more our thinking falls in line with God and God's will, the more we'll become united to one another. And I hope something that's going on in Chalmers at the moment is that we are reflecting on the material we've been hearing in chapters 12 to to 16. This this Christian mind, I hope, is growing amongst us individually and corporately. Because we've seen some key things, haven't we? We've seen in chapter 12 that we have different gifts, but the Christian mind says, my gifts are from grace, from God's grace, for others. So the Christian mind thinks, how can I use them rather than compare them to other people? Or the Christian mind says, I know we've got different life circumstances. Some of us have got amazing blessings we're enjoying at the moment. Others of us are really going through the mill. The Christian mind says, Joe, I'm not going to cover the good of my brothers and sisters. I'm not going to look across the fence enviously. I'm going to rejoice with those who rejoice. And I'm not going to kind of ignore, with, with that kind of slightly callous indifference we, we can sometimes have, I'm not going to ignore that person who, who seemed to be in a re- really bad way a small group or on Sunday, I'm going to weep with those who weep. That's the gospel transforming our minds as we see ourselves as a, as a body. Likewise, chapter 13, we've had the gospel transforming how we relate to the world around us, to, to authorities, to sin. Um, and if you want to know what to do with authorities and what to do with sin, uh, you submit to one and you cast off the other. It really matters you get them the right way around. I think we're tempted sometimes to cast off the authorities and to just go along with sin. Again, a transformed mind. And now we're into chapters 14 and 15, this transformed mind, when it comes to disagreements, particularly disagreements on the kind of worship God wants. So how free Christians are to act in certain ways. In terms of contemporary examples, Jay mentioned last week things like whether Christians can drink alcohol or not in honor of God, how Christians keep the Sabbath commandments precisely in honor of God, what dress style or music is appropriate in a church service, or even how exactly the COVID regulations are to be kept, where there are areas of ambiguity and how they're applied into specifics. Each of those areas we're not just talking about preferences. It's not just about tastes. In each of those areas I've mentioned, genuine Christians have genuine convictions about what's right and wrong. That's what makes these issues complex. And that was certainly going on in the Roman church. You see, there were some Jewish Christians who felt that certain food was unclean by God's law, whether by not being kosher or by being sacrificed to pagan idols. They would not risk eating any meat. And they were judging those Christians who did eat meat. And likewise, there were some um, who felt bound to keep special days from the Jewish calendar, and others didn't. Paul calls those two groups, and he may be picking up their language, but he calls those two groups the weak in faith and the strong in faith. And it's clear that Paul puts himself in the strong camp. Uh, So just look at uh, verse 14 with me um, in chapter 14, 14, 14. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is in unclean in itself. Or look on to chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong 
have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. So in this situation, there is a right answer, and Paul knows it. Jesus declared all foods clean. Paul knows that's what the Bible teaches. This is an area where there is genuine Christian freedom. And so the weak in faith, in this case, are wrong biblically. But what's so surprising, and it, it, the more I think about it, the more it does shock me, really, that in chapters 14 and 15, Paul spends almost no time arguing for the right answer. Almost no time trying to pressure or persuade the weak into agreeing. He does, he does say verse 14, so he does give an answer. But that's not his focus, because there's something far more important to teach us as he forms our Christian minds, as he, as he transforms the way we think by the gospel, he's got something far more important to say than just what's the right answer on food. And this passage this morning is addressed primarily at the strong Christians in the situation. So this is addressed primarily at those who know their freedom and want to express it the ones who just want to get on with enjoying their Christian rights without being kind of held back by the oversensitive hang-ups of their brothers and sisters and from a different background getting in the way. I think it can be a bit hard to get our heads into the kind of world of the Jew-Gentile conflicts in Rome. So, so let me give um, a contemporary example. Um, in verse 21, uh, wine is, is mentioned. Uh, it's not the only issue because it's very clear Verse 21, it's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And, but let me, let me pick alcohol as a, as a kind of um, worked example for us. Um, so Mark, Mark is a Christian. He moves to Edinburgh from a more culturally conservative background. And he joins a new city church and he's shocked that when he comes to the church weekend, he looks at the timetable and on it in one of the evenings is going for drinks together in a beer garden after one of the sessions to socialize. Mandy, a friend of Mark at that church, Mandy thinks Mark is being ridiculous. She knows that the Bible says you must not get drunk. We've just had that chapter 13, uh, Romans 13, verse 13. And she does take that seriously in her life. She knows that self-control is an important part of a Christian mind and worshiping God. But she believes wine is a good gift from God, and so drinking moderately with a meal or, or chatting with friends is fine. Now, last week addressed both of them. Last week spoke to Mark and Mandy and said, uh, do not pass judgment on Mandy, Mark, for her conviction that she's free to drink, and warn Mandy, don't despise Mark for his more sensitive conscience. That was last week. And you could multiply the examples. Um, maybe one Christian's from overseas and is used to singing in a church in an exuberant and expressive way. They're used to clapping and dancing while they sing. It's just normal. And they're persuaded there's nothing unbiblical about that. Nothing wrong with moving our bodies and raising our hands when we sing. But they think that honors God. They come to a church that's much more restrained in style. And the first Sunday when they get both arms up in the air and start kind of shifting their hips a bit, someone taps them on the shoulder and says, you can't do that here. That's not appropriate for holy worship. Here's another one. It's actually happened um, to me. 
a few years ago at Chalmers, um, there was a, a Christian dropping in visiting the church, and they, they wrote a letter after the Sunday service suggesting it was inappropriate that the preachers um, were not smartly dressed enough when proclaiming God's word. It's God's word. How could you be smart casual? You really ought to be smart. Now, last week, Paul addressed both sides of the debates. Don't despise. Don't look down on those with that kind of sensitive conscience. But also, don't judge where there is real Christian freedom. If, uh, if God has welcomed them, we must welcome them. But this week, Paul is speaking to the strong side of the debate, as in um, he's speaking to Mandy, who feels free to drink, or to the person who feels free to move expressively while singing in church, or the person who feels free in what they wear on a Sunday. And the message Paul gives is really surprising Because even though he agrees with the strong faith answer here, that all food is clean, and personally, I think he would agree with Mandy that drunkenness is wrong, but moderate um, use of wine with self-control is fine. But nevertheless, he wouldn't say to Mandy, okay, let's go and sort Mark out. Let's just drag him to the pub and tell him to relax. Quite the opposite. Verse 13, just have a look. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This is our first point. Decide not to do anything that would make your brother or sister stumble. Why? Verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. And look at this warning. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Could hardly be expressed more strongly, actually, could it? And what does it mean to make someone stumble in this passage? Well, the risk is their eternal security. We're talking about destroying in the sense of uh, uh, doing something that might, might um, lead them to, to actually be not being safe on the final day, being destroyed. Verse 20 puts it like this. Do not, for the sake of God, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. There's the answer again. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat drink or sorry eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And that do anything does show that the application will move beyond just food and drink here. Paul wants the stronger Christian who's so persuaded biblically that they have freedom to act. Paul wants them to realize what really matters here. And it's not the bacon sandwich or the glass of wine. No, care about the other person. Care about their eternal safety. So Mandy shouldn't be, shouldn't be chipping away at Mark with the, the jokes and the nagging to, to come and join them to the pub when he doesn't feel comfortable. In fact, she should be thinking, what would be an alternative social that would work, that wouldn't force him to go against his conscience? Why is it so dangerous because it's quite dramatic, this passage. It starts with quite small issues, like what, what do you eat and drink, and ends up in eternal issues, like destroying someone for whom Christ died. How can it be so dangerous? Well, look at verse 14 with me. I only read half of verse 14 earlier in the talk. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but, and this is the key, listen to this, It is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. 
You see, to go against our conscience, to eat or drink or do anything we think is wrong, that is wrong for a Christian. That is to say, it is sin in God's sight, whether or not the actual activity we did was unbiblical or not. Striking that, just look at verse 23, which unpacks it further. I'm sorry to jump around a bit, but verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I think it's such a striking statement. As we grow our Christian minds, as we're more and more transformed by the gospel, every single thing we do should proceed from faith, which is, let me put it in different words, I should be able to say of every activity I do, I'm doing this in worship of God. In this activity, I'm honoring God. It's actually a good diagnostic question if you're ever wondering, is this thing right to do? Can, can I watch that? Can I do that? Can I get involved in that? Ask the question, can I honestly, in my conscience, worship God while I do it? It's a good diagnostic question. And, and it's serious because... And whether or not our moral compass, our conscience, is, is in, it perfectly calibrated by the Bible or not, it's still serious whether we listen to our conscience and help others to listen to their conscience. It's not to say we can't educate our conscience. Remember, we're being transformed in our minds. But it is deeply dangerous, always deeply dangerous, to, to do something we know is wrong. Or to suggest to someone else, ah, oh, go on, it'll be fine. I know you think it's wrong, but we think it's fine, so come on, just go ahead. The Bible warns that over time, going against our conscience, not listening to our conscience, hardens our hearts, it dulls our consciences, in, in time it sears our consciences until they become calloused and un unable to, to hear God's word and turn. And Paul says, do not go there. And don't encourage another brother or sister to go there. So what should Mandy, or, uh, what should Mandy do with Mark? Well, definitely stop the jokes and the digs about being far too buttoned up. Definitely see if there's an imaginative alternative to how to have a social for their small group somewhere else. What did I do when I heard about that letter about getting dressed smartly? Well, for the next two years, I wore a suit jacket every time I preached. Um, the only reason I'm not at the moment is because the lights I get so hot since lockdown. Um, but it's worth it. Because the last thing I want to do is either that person come to church when he thinks something is wrong here, that, that um, we're, we're dishonoring the Lord in how we look up front, or they don't come to church. They just give up and don't hear the gospel. Either way, that person could stumble What might that exuberant Christian do who knows they're free? Well, if it's really distracting and upsetting and, and going against the conscience of another Christian in that particular church, they might not just go off down the road to a different church where everyone's the same. They might curtail their freedom for the sake of another. Likewise, Jay mentioned last week the example of how Christian consciences differ on how to observe the Sabbath day, the one day in seven, the day of rest. He mentioned the example of someone who, who does set apart Sunday as a day of rest and gathering with God's people, but who will occasionally pop into a grocery store to pick up a much-needed supply that had been forgotten. 
What does Romans 14, the second half of Romans 14, say to that person? I think it says, on the day when he's walking home with someone who's coming to lunch and he knows has a strong conviction that they should never enter a shop on Sunday, well, then that's not the day to say, oh, can we just pop in here? Do you mind if we just pop in? I just need to get something. Now, that's the day to skip the missing item. To have chicken without potatoes or whatever it was. Because, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Think what really matters, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God, approved by men. So then, let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul wants us to have some perspective, to, to see what really matters, to see the stakes. My bacon sandwich, my glass of wine, my expression of freedom, uh, watching the film I want to watch uh, with some Christian friends, it does not matter compared to God's gospel project of uniting people in one voice of worship. And actually, it's striking what he says does matter in verse 17. Righteousness, peace, and joy. I wonder if those words ring any bells in Romans. I know it's been a year, and it's been a full-on year, hasn't it? But, but those are big words in Romans. Righteousness, that's the gift we all have in Jesus, being right in God's sight. Peace, uh, chapter 5, since you have been justified, we have peace with God. Joy, uh, we are united in, in, in looking forward to God taking us home in Christ. Those are the things that really matter. The gospel that holds us together is what matters so don't um, cause some to stumble or tear the church apart just because I want to enjoy my freedom. I was talking to someone about this and um, explaining that we might need to, to, to um, adjust a particular thing in life for the sake of others' tender conscience. Um, and, and the initial gut reaction was, you can't be serious. That's going to be really inconvenient. And I think that's where chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, gives us even more motivation. We'll be very brief on this uh, as we begin to come into land. But chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. It's, uh, it echoes lots of what we've seen in Romans 12 to 16. We have an obligation to love people, not just avoid sin, but positively engage in a life of love. It's like chapter 13, verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. And that should apply to someone who's convinced of their Christian freedom, the strong, having an obligation to bear with the tender conscience of another. And verse 2, I just think it's such a good headline for the moment, isn't it? For charmers at this stage of the pandemic and this change stage of our lives together, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Because the reality is, and, and I guess those of us here this early in the, on a Sunday morning know this, perhaps more than, more than anyone, uh, the way we're doing church, it isn't equally convenient for everyone. Some of us would love services to be at different times or would love to be allocated to a different slot. Some of us would love to have fewer in the building, others more. And actually, some of those views are, are deeply held. Not just preferences, but actually uh, strong feelings about what's right in honoring the government. And this is a wonderful reminder 
to consider not just what pleases me, but what builds others up. As elders, through the many, many different decisions and and discussions through lockdown, uh, this has genuinely been our driving principle. What will build up the church family in all its diversity? What will help people spiritually? That's why we're trying to now get people back weekly, um, because it will benefit people, even though it will cost to make it happen. And what's the motivation? Well, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. As it's written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. See, the Lord Jesus was willing to forego his own freedom, his own pleasure and comfort and enjoyment of life for the sake of building others up. And now having benefited from his self-sacrifice, his laying down of his freedoms, we have the opportunity to do likewise, to live in love with other Christians, even when we don't draw exactly the same lines of freedom as them. And just as a final thought as we close, I found Romans 14 and 15 so helpful to me personally. Um, Because one thing I've realized about the COVID guidelines and how they get applied in the complexity of life and church life is that even amongst Christians who agree with Romans 13, we must submit to the government, absolutely do what they say, there is still some complexity on the ground. Exactly how does that cash out when there's overlapping guidelines or or when there's some gray area about the spirit of the guidelines in a particular phrase. And this has been such a good passage for me to keep remembering that it's not just a case of kind of deciding what I think and then saying everyone should line up with it. Actually respecting the consciences of other Christians, of different temperaments, of different backgrounds, and of other churches. Not everyone makes exactly the same call on the ground as we do. But Christ's aim was always not to please himself, but to build others up spiritually for that glorious gospel goal of a multicultural, multinational, multi-background community united in worship of the living God. And actually one of my prayers for Chalmers over the coming years is that this passage gets harder and harder to live out for us because our church family gets more and more diverse. See, the more different backgrounds we have coming together, in the gospel, the more different views and and different instincts people will have, different places where their consciences are currently calibrated as we all get transformed by the word of God. And my hope is this gets harder to do and we remain more and more motivated by the Lord Jesus to do it. So let me pray the prayer of verse 5 one more time as we close. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Amen.